morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. First Peter chapter one. Now this holiday season is an interesting time of year for a number of reasons. One reason why I find it to be interesting is that this is the time of year when everyone is supposed to be happy. We're all supposed to spread holiday cheer. And yet, uh, for many of us, uh, this can often be the hardest time of year uh, for those of us who have um, lost family members, um, uh, for those of us who uh, just when the, when the winter time comes, it's, it's dark, it's not as sunny, and so for those of us who uh, have uh, leanings towards a melancholy temperament, uh, this can just be, it can be a hard time. And then it becomes complicated because um, you look around and everyone else seems to be, to be happy. Well, in our text today, we're going to, going to look at the, the idea of trials. Um, and um, I, I believe the Lord would want to speak to us today about um, how do we respond faithfully uh, in light of trials and difficulties, um, even in times when, um, you know, the culture says uh, we, we, we should be uh, just happy? Uh, this, this book, First Peter, was written to Christians who were going through trials. Um, what exactly is going on is unclear. It may have been the persecution under uh, Nero. Uh, but what is clear, based on the many references to suffering that uh, the Apostle Peter makes, is that uh, he, he desires to encourage believers in the midst of their trials. Now, there's reasons why these Christians needed to be encouraged in their trials, and there's reasons why we need to be encouraged in trials. Um, you know, trials present Christians with certain kinds of temptations. You know, when something comes into our lives, whether it be uh, severe health issues or relational difficulty, uh, accidents, you know, one of the first things we want to know as we process it is, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Um, And that's a natural question to ask. You know, the problem is that, you know, because trials are usually bad or unpleasant things, The first things that often come to mind in the midst of trials is, wait, is God punishing me? Is God displeased with me? Did I do something to bring this trial upon myself? Is it because of my sin or am I even saved? We ask those kinds of questions. That's what trials can do. They can tempt us to question our standing with God. And so it's interesting that in our text, Uh, Peter begins by assuring them of their right standing with God in verse 3. And so I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 9 of 1 Peter. And this is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we uh, give you praise this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We praise you that he is seated on the throne on high, that you have exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, Father. And now as we spend this time in your word, uh, we pray that you would give us attentive ears and hearts. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, that you would do it for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Peter is assuring the believers of their right standing with God. Uh, In verse 3, he highlights the great mercy of God in granting the new birth. Uh, He speaks of an inheritance that is so secure that it's being kept in heaven. In verse 4, not only is the inheritance being kept, but the Christians themselves are being kept or guarded by God's power. In verse 5, you know, in, in this area, we're used to uh, things being guarded. <laughs> we live in a culture of security. Uh, in fact, when I'm in this area, <laughs> there's, there's just a little bit of tension for me personally. Sometimes I feel like if I just make the wrong move, that somebody with sunglasses is going to jump out with his earpiece and just surround me because we're in this culture of, 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 of security. Well... The security that uh, may be here in in government is absolutely nothing compared to the security of God's power. If the almighty God, the same God who upholds the universe by the word of his power is guarding you, you can't be any more secure than that. And yet, when we face trials, we're often tempted to think, what did I do? What did I do? Now, we just read that uh, you know, Jesus told us 
Whoever wants to follow him must take up their cross. It is an instrument of death. And yet trials tend to take us by surprise. Uh, In fact, if you're anything like me, you do whatever you can to try to guard yourself from having to go through trials. We try to insulate ourselves. And so when a trial makes it through the defense that we've built up against it, we become surprised and we wonder why. And yet later on in this book, the Apostle Peter tells them in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so in verse 6 of our text, Peter is teaching them that the trials that come are inevitable and unavoidable for the Christian. And that's the meaning behind that phrase, if necessary. God in his all-wise providence is the one who is determining whether or not we need to go through a trial. All trials in the Christian life are father-filtered trials. They're father-filtered. They come through his hands, and he has good purposes, God-glorifying purposes. In verse 6, we see the phrase various trials, And so we see that trials that afflict believers are multifaceted for the Christian. They come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. So whether it be temptation or pain, persecution, could be ridicule, could be finances, health-related, job-related. This time of year sometimes highlights difficult family situations, you name it, it's father filtered. If you're going through a trial, if you're Christian, it does not mean that you're not saved, and it does not mean that God doesn't love you. Those are the wrong interpretations of trials for the Christian. And so Peter seeks to adjust their and our perspective by giving them the right interpretation of their trials. So we see in verse 7, it says, these trials have come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so based on this, we can say that God brings trials into our lives so that our faith might be shown to be real now and that it would be celebrated in heaven. That our faith would be shown to be real now and then in the future, that same faith would be celebrated in heaven. Trials are the kindness of God to expose what's there in us. And so after explaining this, Peter goes on to affirm Uh, the believers there by describing their experience to them. And so in doing so, he's directing their attention to Christ and the joy that they're experiencing as a result of their salvation as a way of encouraging them. And so my prayer for us this morning is that God would do that for us, for those of us who are Christians, that God would direct our attention to Christ and the salvation that is ours 
in him, that, that we would be encouraged by the joy that we have in him even as we go through trials. If you're not a Christian this morning, my prayer is that uh, verse 3 would be true for you this morning, that God in his great mercy would cause you, even this morning, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we're going to zoom in on verses 8 and 9. And in verses 8 and 9, I want us to look at three things related to the Christian's joy. Number one, the cause of the Christian's joy. Number two, the character of the Christian's joy. And then number three, the completion of the Christian's joy. The cause of the Christian's joy, the character of the Christian's joy, and the completion of the Christian's joy. First, the cause of the Christian's joy. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The cause of the Christian's joy, to put it as simply as possible, is Jesus. Jesus is the cause of our joy. More specifically, our joy comes as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That phrase sounds familiar. It's because that's a quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That passage and many others highlight the reality that there's two kinds of seeing when it comes to Jesus. There's a kind that saves and a kind that doesn't save. There's a seeing Jesus that saves and there's a seeing Jesus that does not save. There's, there's seeing with the physical eyes and then there's seeing with the eyes of the heart. Now, you would think that if anyone would believe in Jesus, it would be those who saw him with their physical eyes, right? And, and that's, that's how we tend to, we tend to rationalize it. When we, when we read the scriptures, we see, wait a minute, <laughs> these, Jesus did all of these miracles in front of people. Uh, how could they not believe in Jesus? They saw him raise the dead. They saw him give sight to people who were blind. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And in fact, right after that miracle, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, I said to you in John 6, 36, you have seen me and yet do not believe. You have seen me and yet do not believe. We might be tempted to think that if only we were there, our faith would be greater than it is right now. If only, if only we, could, we could have seen him. But Jesus teaches that uh, seeing him and his miracles with the physical eyes has no bearing at all on whether or not you believe. 
This is what Jesus taught in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. You remember that story? The, the rich man and Lazarus, they both die. And after death, the rich man is immediately in torment, being, being uh, punished for his sins. And he has this conversation with Abraham where he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to, to warn his family so that they also don't have to come there when they die. And do you remember Abraham's reply? He said, they have Moses and the prophets, a.k.a. the Bible. Let them listen to them. The rich man says, no, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The nature of true saving faith is not about seeing the miraculous with your physical eyes. It's about having a transformed heart. And so that's why the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 that, that the, the Ephesian believers would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And so when that happens, when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, we don't need to see Jesus with our physical eyes in order to love him or believe in him. And so verse 8 of our text will only be true if this has happened in your life. If, if your heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh, if, if, if the, the scales have been moved from your eyes and your eyes have been opened to see Jesus. As far as salvation is concerned, the question is not, were you born into a Christian family? The question is not, do you have believing family members or do you live a more moral life than your non-Christian co-workers? The question isn't even, do you have good theology, as important as that is. No, as it relates to salvation, the question is, are you born again? Have you experienced the new birth from above? Have your eyes been opened to behold the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has God spoken to your dark heart and said, live? Has this happened to you? If that has happened, then the inevitable result, we see it in verse 8. <laughs> you love Jesus and you believe in him. So you want to you test yourself this morning to see whether or not you're in the faith? It's actually very simple. Do you love him? Do, do you believe in him? I love it. A child can get this. It's so simple. Do you love Jesus? You know, God can work in the heart of even a three-year-old child to open their eyes, their little eyes of their little hearts to love and believe in Jesus. All a child has to understand is that they're bad and they've done bad things. And I'm talking to the children in here right now. If you understand that you've done bad things and that you deserve to be punished by God for your bad things that you've done, and you believe that Jesus came into this world to save bad people, to save people who've done bad things, and you hope in him, 
you trust in him, you believe in him, God promises that you will be saved and that you will get to go to heaven and spend heaven forever with Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's, it's how we all get saved. By, by, by recognizing those truths that even a child can understand. I love it. A three-year-old who believes in Jesus has more spiritual insight than someone with a PhD who doesn't. They have more wisdom, more understanding than the most learned scholars in the world. It's because God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's our God. Do you love Jesus? Now, we know what it means to love somebody, right? We see it on a human level. When, when you love someone, what happens when someone is in love? You think about that person all the time. You desire to please that person. You want to spend time with that person. When you're not around that person, that person's gone, you miss them, Right? One of my greatest joys as a father is, uh, is coming home from work and greeting my wife and my son and my, my, my little not-yet-two-year-old son to see his eyes light up when daddy comes home. Such a great joy. There's a purity of love there from a son to his father. You know, when you, when you love someone, you're willing to do things that just make you look crazy. They make people look at you like, okay, that person must be crazy. You're definitely in love because what you're doing right now, that's, that's crazy, right? You, you, you're willing to look foolish when you're in love. You don't even care how foolish it looks because you love the person. When you love someone, you're willing to sacrifice for that person. You're willing to give things up, and it's not, you don't even count it. It's not even an issue because of the love that you have for that person. I could go on, but we get the point. You know, Jesus even adds another dimension to it by saying in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And so obedience to God is evidence of love for God. Do you love him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus? Do you believe that he is God, the second person of the Trinity. Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? It's not just a cute little Christmas fable. It's reality that Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? That he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins not, not a generic, he died for everybody since, but he died for me. <laughs> he died on the cross for my sins. Can you say, like the apostle in Galatians 2.20, that the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me? Is it personal? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave that he ascended into heaven and that he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. Do you believe that he's coming back to judge the world? Do you believe in Jesus? Well, if you do, 
you have God to thank for that. If you believe in Jesus, you have God to thank for that because in his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. It took an act of great power to make this happen. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that we're Christians because of our own effort or our own initiative. If we're Christians in here this morning, it's because of an act of supreme power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead was at work to raise us spiritually from the dead. And so if we believe in Jesus, we have God to thank for that. If you love Jesus and believe in him, it's because he first loved you and he chose you before the foundation of the world. Praise God. It's because of God that you and I are in Christ Jesus. Now, one way to know, you know, because, you know, many of us can hear this and we can say, okay, I understand that, um, you know, evidence is, uh, you know, being a Christian is loving Jesus and believing in him and but I'm not sure. How do I know? How do I know that I love him? I think I, I think I love him. I think I believe in him. How do I know? Well, one way to know that you've moved beyond just saying that you love and believe in Jesus to actually loving and believing in him is when your love for him is not only based off of what he can do for you, but simply because of who he is. When your love for God is not simply self-serving and based off of what he can do, but just the beauty of his person, who he is in and of himself moves you. When you can delight in the beauty of Jesus, when you can delight in the fact that Jesus is, he's so powerful that he upholds the universe by the words of his power, and yet, at the same time, Jesus tells all the weary and the burdened to come to him, and he'll give them rest. When you don't see Jesus as merely the means of getting something better than him, but your desire is for him, you're moving in the right direction. Let's, let's next consider the character of the Christian's joy. In verse 8, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That word there, that phrase filled with glory is literally, it's literally glorified joy. Glorified joy is the phrase that's there. It's, it's a heavenly joy. It's as though heaven has come to earth. It's like what we talked about in the worship series about uh, when Jesus talked about the new world, talking about it as the regeneration, that, that, uh, that heaven is, is, is reaching back into time to give us the, uh, the qualities, the internal qualities that will be present in us in eternity. It's a glorified joy. You know, it's one thing to believe the facts about God. It's another thing entirely to delight in him. (laughs) I like this quote from my man, Jonathan Edwards. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. (laughs) 
When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to see and delight in it. When we delight, that glorifies God more than if we only see it. It's a glorified joy. The joy that we have in Christ now is of the same nature as the joy that will be ours throughout eternity. And so the, 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 the difference is, is in degree, not in quality. It's in degree. In heaven, we'll experience this joy perfectly, but we have the same quality of it now. And, and, th- and this, is, this is spoken of as, you know, you know, Peter is not talking about like two different sets of believers, right? You have, like the believers over here who love and believe in Jesus and the believers over here who don't know. Like, so th- this, is, th- this is meant for us to test ourselves. It's what it means to be a Christian, to experience this glorified joy. And so what does it look like? It's, it's the joy of gathering with the people of God and singing God's praises as we've been doing. You ever, you, ever, you ever spent time praising God to the point where you just didn't want to stop? <laughs> you know, you know we, we, have, we have a group of brothers and sisters who, who love praising God in this church so much that they said, you know what, let's just start, let's have a praise night. <laughs> a night where we can come together on a Friday and praise God. That is, that is evidence of God's grace at work. You have the joy, it's, it's the, the, the joy of reading God's word and finding something, seeing something in a passage that you've read over and over again, but then you read it again and you're like, wow, Lord, you see more of God in the scriptures and derive joy from that. That's glorified joy. It's, it's the joy of, of taking the Lord's Supper and it moving beyond just Uh, just a ritual that we do to a time where we actually get to experience the nearness of God and to taste the sweetness of sin forgiven and rejoicing in that. That's heavenly, glorified joy. It's the joy of, of seeing a brother or sister baptized like we saw with Stephen a few weeks ago and just delighting in that, delighting in God's salvation, even allowing it to take us back to when we first got saved and we were baptized, experiencing that. That's heavenly joy. It's the joy of, of not completely falling apart when tragedy strikes. You may not have all the answers, but you're determined by the grace of God to trust him to even make it through the day. That's heavenly glorified joy. It's the joy of, of, of seeing someone you love come to faith in Christ and then watching them as they grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. It's glorified joy. The joy of, of spending time with God in prayer and, and having the Holy Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. That comes from God. It's a glorified joy. It's, it's the joy of walking with God for many years and 
experiencing his track record of faithfulness to you over the years and saying, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your faithfulness, and your mercy to me over the years. That's glorified joy. It's not a fake smile. You see in verse 6, you see that there's, there's grief mixed in, right? He says, you have been grieved by various trials at the end of verse 6. And so there's, there's room in the Christian life for both rejoicing and being grieved at the same time. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the tension that we live in, in a fallen world. Joy and grief are always mingled together in this world for the believer. And I love in verse 8 that it says it's inexpressible. This joy is inexpressible. You can't even put it into words. This joy is like trying to explain color to someone who's blind. You can't can't do it. Where, where, Where do I begin to talk about what God has done for me? This heavenly joy can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are obstacles. There are things that, uh, that will work to try to stifle this joy. And here are a couple of them. One obstacle to experiencing this joy is sin. Sin. Sin will stifle your joy in Christ. Doing what we shouldn't do or not doing what we should. It's, it's a joy stifler. And so if, you know, if, if you're struggling this morning to ask, man, is this me? I'm not experiencing this kind of heavenly joy. Just take a look around your life. Are there, are there any areas of pronounced disobedience? Are you walking in disobedience in, in any areas in your life? That's going to stifle or hinder your joy. And so the call is to repent, to turn from those things, to trust in Jesus Christ more and more, even as believers, to continually trust in him. So sin will stifle this joy. Another thing that will stifle this joy is an inordinate focus on things that aren't sin in themselves, but can become sin when we place them above God. So it's it's good things that are are improperly emphasized or focused on, inordinate affections or desires. Those things will stifle our joy. Another thing that will stifle our joy is is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Not taking the time to spend before God, crying out to him on a regular basis. What will happen is over time we become less and less familiar with God and less inclined to turn to God when we should. That's going to stifle our joy. The mindset of the believer is found in Colossians 3, 2, where it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, this life is fleeting. This life is temporary. 
in a very short amount of time, all of us are going to be standing before God. Let us not waste our lives on on trifles, things that that have no substance or eternal weight to them. But let let us, as a community, seek to press in into Christ. And let us, let us seek to help one another do that. Our growth in grace class this morning was on, on the one another's of the New Testament, the kind of lives that, that God calls us to. It's lives of, of transparency, lives of, of, of community, lives of, of mutual uh, sympathy and empathy, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn, bearing one another's burdens, bearing with one another. This is what God is calling us to. We're not meant to do this alone. We can't do it. It's not how God designed it. God has not designed us to walk alone. He's designed it that we walk together to glory. And so let us press in to God. Thirdly, we'll look at the completion of the Christian's joy. The completion of of the Christian's joy. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This verse points us back to what Peter was saying in verse 7 about God using trials to prove our faith now and to result in celebration when Christ is revealed. For the Christian, our joy will find its ultimate completion in heaven. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So right now the joy that we have, it is a glorified joy and yet at the same time we see through a glass darkly. Our bodies and our minds are fallen. We behold the glory of Christ by faith, in heaven we'll behold it by sight. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I talked about this a little bit uh, in the series on worship uh, as, as it relates to, to heaven. Uh, I'll say it again that one of the things I think is going to surprise us about heaven is not merely how different everything is, but how familiar everything is. And I think we already see it. We see that by the nature of this joy. So the nature of our joy is going to be the same in heaven as it is now. It it will just be increased and we'll have the capacity to experience it because we'll have glorified bodies. The gospel will be the same gospel. The same gospel that has saved our souls now is the gospel we will praise the Lamb for for all eternity in heaven. The gospel will not be different in heaven. We'll be doing many of the same things in heaven, praising God, thanking God, singing to God. One thing that we won't be doing in heaven is we won't be confessing our sin to God. There won't be any sin to confess because we'll be sinless by the grace of God. Hallelujah. We'll be with many of the same people in heaven. 
The disposition of the saints in heaven is the same. Think about what God's word says. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. You can sing that song. song, That's a song that you can sing in heaven. Isaiah 26, 8 and 9. In the paths of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. There won't be a night in heaven because the Lamb and God will light it up. But that that earnest soul, my soul thirsts for you and desires you, that's a heavenly psalm right there. Psalm 86, 12 and 13, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. It's a heavenly psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. That disposition of the saints on earth, that's the same disposition we'll have in heaven. Jesus said in John 15, 11, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants his joy, the joy with which he rejoices in the Father, to be in us and to be completed in us. And so it becomes clear that eternal life is not primarily about just a long, long, long period of time, but eternal life is about a person. It's about Jesus. And so let us cultivate our appetite and our desire for the Lord by using his appointed means. Let us read his word. Let us seek him in prayer. Let us gather with the saints, both on Sundays and throughout the week. Let's let's use the things that God has appointed and promised that he'll bless to encourage our hearts and our souls towards him. Otherwise, I don't know how we're going to make it through any trials. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The object of our worship in heaven will be the same. We fix our eyes on the Lamb now by faith, and heaven will fix our eyes on the Lamb by sight. That's why Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart 
may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so the call for us all, if you're not a Christian, is to turn from your sins, to trust in Jesus Christ, and to receive the joy that can be yours in Christ. And for us as Christians, it's to continually, every day, as an act of faith, turn from our sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and help this community of faith to do it together. And in doing so, God will be glorified in all things, including our trials. Let's pray.